You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Kevin Lowe. Kevin is a Gubby Gubby man from South East Queensland. He is Associate Professor and Indigenous Fellow at the University of New South Wales, working on a community and school-focused research project on sustainable improvement in Aboriginal education. Kevin has had experience as a teacher, administrator and lecturer in education. He has experience in working with Aboriginal community organisations and on establishing Aboriginal language policy and school curriculum implementation. He established the Aboriginal Voices Project and is lead chief researcher in the Culturally Nourishing Schooling Project. Welcome, Kevin. G'day. How are you, Deb? Good to talk to you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. And to start the conversation, I thought we might start with something that I assume is important in the work that you do and also maybe part of the reason that you're called to do the work that you do. And that is that you are a descendant of the Gubby Gubby people of Southeast Queensland. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little about where you're from, your ancestors, your elders, your country, your story. Sure. I was born in um, the far western suburbs of Sydney in the very, very early 1950s. You can work out then how old I am. My mother's mother um, was born in Winton in central Queensland. She was the middle daughter of a large family of boys of a uh, mixed marriage between my great-grandmother, who was a woman who was, um, I guess, a sort of a migrant from Scotland, and an Aboriginal man from Gympie. And during the late 1890s, they left where they were living in Springshaw, which is just west of Rockhampton, and moved further west when the Queensland government policy really came into action in terms of the removal of children from families. My grandmother's family uh, moved into far western New South Wales in their attempts to escape that regime and she and her younger siblings were born on the banks of the Darling River at places called Louth and Burke. After that, my, my grandmother's family, sort of, you know, through desperation and poverty, uh, moved to um, Cobar and started working in the mines in the 1920s. My grandmother moved to Sydney with her mother and other younger siblings. My great-grandmother was an incredible activist in the the origins of the Labor Party. She was a foundational member of the Labor Party, joining in the 1890s and was very active in the beginnings of the Australian Workers' Union. And they very early on uh, were very active in political organisation and I guess for at least two or three generations saw that the liberation of Indigenous people was would come through, I guess, the ballot box and through political engagement. So my grandmother then moved from New South Wales to Western Australia and my mother was born on the Swan River at, in, in Perth. She married my, my grandfather, who was a sort of a foundational member of the Perth community going right back to 1829. So I believe that's probably in the first year of white settlement. So it's a really mixed family. My mother and grandmother and grandfather moved back in the, in the 1930s it wasn't until the 1940s and early 50s, I guess, that my mother then re-engaged with her cousins and so on and began her sort of active engagement both in politics and also in black politics, I guess. And I guess I'm the product of a family that lived, breathed 
and dreamed about political change in this country and we were sort of the, the product of that sort of history in black activism. So you're one in a long line of activists, political activists, but also the product of what sounds like also quite a traumatic experience of history that led to that feeling of need for change in the Australian political landscape. Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, you know, politics was the, the release valve for what was at that time, you know, systemic uh, and endemic poverty that resided often not just amongst Aboriginal people, but you know, those who were the working class poor in uh, country Australia it was, uh, you know, a pretty hard time. All of that must somehow come to bear on the work that you've done over some years now in education, you know, as a teacher and as someone who works in and with schools for the betterment of the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people and their families. Is there a something that took you, that bridged you from your early experiences and your family experiences to that work, do you think? As a young person, I was I was at the tail end of, you know, the the political movement around the Vietnam War. And so, you know, that provided, you know, I was at that critical point, you know, 16, 17, 18, where these things were really in the sort of the, the you know, the broader public on a day-by-day basis and, and politics of the whole process of the post-colonialisation of, of Asia and of, you know, other locations, you know, was was part and parcel of the, the diet that I grew up in. I must also make a plug, I guess, for many of the teachers that I had. These are many of the teachers that I had in school, both primary and secondary, were, were returned soldiers. I guess, you know, they were pretty hard, hard blokes, most of them, but they also had a very strong view about the whole notion of conscription. And it was this strange alliance. A strange alliance? I mean, there was certainly there was a, a political alliance between these young men. I went to a large boys' school out in the out in the sort of southwestern suburbs of Sydney and, you know, it was a thousand boys. And so the <laughs> things were pretty hard in those days and we accepted a lot more violence, I guess, you know, in the classroom and the use of, you know, corporal punishment and things like that. But there was a sort of this alliance between these returned soldiers and these young emerging men, I guess, who were expressing a view about their refusal to engage in the sort of the war in uh, Southeast Asia. And so I guess I'm just saying that I was lucky to have been schooled by some incredibly intelligent men who utilised the opportunities were given to them at the end of the war to go back to university and to learn to be teachers, came out as teachers, and who also had a very strong political view about sort of things that I was interested in. So we were, you know, we were very lucky. I, I felt that I was very lucky in growing up in that age and having the influence of some of these men who were not only great teachers, but also had fantastic views about the political landscape. And so that really set me off going and, and starting to teach in schools where there are Aboriginal kids in schools and being confronted again with the sort of, you know, because I was a pretty much solitary student, an Aboriginal kid in a, a very large, you know, suburban school, but teaching uh, really sort of activated the need for me to see and understand what was going on in schools. I mean, understand the dynamics of schools and how schools were constructed to achieve, you know, a very strong set of unequal outcomes for Aboriginal kids. I'm wondering how your sense of activism has changed now that you're, you know, you're in the academy, you're writing, you're working with schools. Do you still have that same sense of activism or is it a, a subtler activism or a different activism? How, I guess I'm wondering how it plays out in the work that you do now. I've moved from the drama of, you know, being on the street and, and demonstrating to, I guess, the more subtle but equally significant environment of schools and schooling and the academy. 
I've filled my dance card with a lot of work in school. So most of my work is working with the people that I, I like and have as great empathy for, which is the classroom teacher and the work that they do and the struggles that they have. And even though I've done probably now 30 years of professional learning with teachers, uh, my strong view is is that the vast majority of teachers want to do the right thing and not only want to do the right thing but you know really strongly ascribe to having a a strong sense of social justice I mean we wouldn't do this work if you didn't but going into the academy and having time to really think about the things that impact on teacher capacity to do the work that they want to do but find it uh, almost impossible in many cases to do it's given me the capacity to really sort of understand what are the sort of the deep structural issues that impact on what what schooling allows teachers to do and how teachers have been schooled by policy and practice and by curriculum and maybe even the profession itself to engage and understand the world in a particular way and which often then throws them into sort of you know these moments of deep uh, resistance and sort of the violence of schooling that leads and has had you know the impact of having intergenerational conflict between teachers, schools, Aboriginal kids and the community. So this is an intergenerational, dare I say, sort of almost a warfare in some cases. It sounds terrible because it's, it's not that, you know, there's armed conflict, but there is this, you know, sporadic but ongoing and deeply ineffectual programs that continue to have the effect of limiting the capacity of Aboriginal kids to engage in schools while at the same time maintaining the sense of Aboriginal identity. And I'm remembering the chapter that you wrote for the Flip to the System Australia mm. book that I co-edited, which was about the importance of engagement between schools and teachers and Aboriginal community. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the importance of that piece when it comes to connectedness to culture and identity and the ways in which teachers and schools might start to mend that gap that is there between what schools are providing and the experience of our Indigenous young people. My doctoral work basically tried to look at the making of teachers who often were to be found in schools, those one or two teachers to whom the Aboriginal kids drifted towards and sometimes ran towards because clearly those teachers had a a level of understanding and empathy and a way of engaging with these kids in ways that where there's a you know significant level of trust that was built between these individual teachers and students and through students their parents. And so those individual teachers, and you probably know them yourself, Deb, you've probably come across those in your travels around schools, but in all the schools where there's been a reasonable number of Aboriginal kids in schools, what you find is is there's there's this one or two teachers to whom the kids really, really are drawn to and whom they depend on often to get them out of the scrapes that they get into, to give them understanding of what's going on at school and to try to sort of be a broker between other members of staff and themselves. They're often the person who parents would go to and just ask and to try to sort of broker sort of, you know, some sort of negotiated peace between their kids and what was going on at school. And I was interested in how do these teachers get made? Where do they come from? What what makes these teachers? Because they really are quite unique. It's not like there's thousands of them, or maybe there are thousands of them. You know, there's 10,000 schools in Australia, so hopefully there's one in every school. But where do they come from? And I was interested in whether or not these people came with this capacity or were they sort of made by some other process? And if it was made by other processes, how could we duplicate it? So I was interested in the duplication of skills. But to do that, I needed to understand where they felt that they got their skills and knowledge from. And what 
became really clear. I was lucky to probably have, I think, the best job in New South Wales, in education at least. I was the, for a good period of time, I was um, the manager or the inspector of Aboriginal education for the New South Wales Board of Studies. So we I had the, the job of designing and developing curriculum and then trying to work with teachers about their implementation, how to actually implement this stuff, which clearly teachers struggled with in terms of, you know, teaching the, the content that was you know, being written into curriculum. And how do we know that? Because parents and, and kids kept on telling us how poorly that work was being done and how teachers often just didn't seem to appreciate or understand what the intentions or the capacities of that content to tell a different story. And so, um, you know, we were writing that content and doing a lot of time in, in writing sampled units of work and putting them out there, following, I guess, the script that we'd all, I guess, accepted, which was that all it was required is we just needed to provide teachers with more professional learning. The basic product was good, and all we needed to do is to add more professional development uh, and show and resources to show them how they could teach this content, and everything would be hunky dory. Well, you know, we, I spent 13 years developing content and getting teachers to come in and develop content, and you know, we had some amazing work go up on our website. And even when teachers did download it and use it, and there was a very high you know, level of downloads on the resources we developed, there was no appreciable change in classroom practice. And so when I spoke to these teachers, when I came across these teachers and just on the side of over a cup of tea, I talked to them about what was it that drove them to do the work they do, but where and where did they get the sort of the 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 knowledges to then be able to sort of shift their own thinking about being, becoming these teachers? And over and over and over again, two things came out. One was that they certainly appeared to have a, a really strong sense of social justice, a really acute sense of what that the need to do something. But the thing that made the most significant difference was the relationship that they developed, often serendipitously, between themselves and the Aboriginal worker at school or themselves and a, a member of the community, who over time, through conversation, built a level of trust between themselves and that teacher such that, that then the teacher was over time given access to knowledges to which the school hadn't in the past been given. So it was that knowledge about the history of the community, the history of conflict, the the nature of their resistance, their aspirations, the, the things that they, they enjoyed. So these teachers learnt on the job under the tutelage of an often unskilled Aboriginal worker in the school who actually gave them the licence but also the skill set and those who maintained that relationship with the, through that person, and that was the conduit for them into the broader community and into the students. The students realised that they had been taken into the confidence of the community through this respected person who was employed at the school or was, you know, down at the football as the coach of the football team or a player in the football side or whatever it was. However, that relationship was broken. But in virtually every case, they required this relationship between themselves and the community to then become this person that was absolutely critical to the success of the school. And so my research really was in a sense of, one is to actually understand that and understand all the sort of dynamics that makes for this relationship to occur and then really began to sort of explore the capacity for these people that if we could actually draw on the skills and the knowledges of these people, whether we could actually sort of train teachers to be different to the way they are. That was the, the piece I wrote was really about that journey, truly really understanding about, about the making of sort of, you know, community standpoint and how communities have a view about school, how they have a view about school and schooling. And you've got that contrast between what you started to talk about, which was, you know, you can pour great quality resources into the, the teaching profession, 
but that doesn't necessarily make a difference, but it's the relationality and the seeking to understand on a person-to-person human level and to build relationships between people but also between school and community, meaningful relationships. That's what made a difference to how people actually operated into the trust relationship between your sort of Aboriginal community and your Aboriginal students and the people working in schools. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise I think anybody who's been in schools more than a few minutes knows that you just can't be an effective teacher if you don't have the trust of the kids. You know, you behind every good teacher, every every good teacher I've ever come across is a high level of trust between themselves and students. They trust their intellectual capacity. They trust them to know what needs to be done. They trust them to to have their interests at heart. That even when they're even when the teacher is cross with them and is you know chastising them, that 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 is part of the the trusting process, so where the teacher is actually trying to manoeuvre the student into a different you know, um, you know, track, but it's for their for their interests and with the, the teacher really uh, is working for them and with them. And that has always been my view that you know, relationships are absolutely at the basis of effective teaching with students. You know, that relationship, you know, is the construct between how the teacher engages and understands the students who are in front of them and understands what their aspirations and needs are and works with them in the in-between spaces, the spaces which are, which there are significant between the teaching of content and the actual educational process. And so it's the in-between spaces that are absolutely critical, that it gets the kid into the classroom, sits the kids down, gets them to listen, engages with you, interacts with you, um, and hopefully has a good time and enjoys what you're doing. You can't be that teacher if you don't have that sort of relationship. But for them, it was a particular sort of relationship. It was a relationship both at a personal level, but it was also, as I I guess I implicitly understood, but it was really good to do this bit of research to confirm this, is it was also a relationship that was built, was built around sort of around knowledge. And so, so having a relationship with knowledge in a different way was critical. And that then set me on the path to really, in a sense, um, really think through um, more clearly about the task of the edifices of education that impact on teachers and make teachers to become the teachers they are and how our practices and our relationships as educators are often constructed for us by the ways in which we, we understand our relationship to the knowledges that we're expected to teach or we do teach and how we engage in other knowledge systems um, and we can engage and bring them into that into that story. Broadening the idea of what is knowledge in teaching and what knowledge systems are important, what we might interact with, I'm thinking about my own doctoral research and some of the responses from my participants because I asked the question, uh, it was about professional learning of teachers, which you talked about, how do teachers learn, how do they become the teachers that they are, how do they decide about what behaviours they're going to enact, what they believe about teaching and about learning and about students. And I asked questions like, when have you professionally learned? Open as that. And some of the most powerful stories were from my grandmother, from working at an orphanage in India as a volunteer from uh, a particular leader that was either a really great leader or someone who made me feel really small. Uh, So those kinds of things where it wasn't I went to this course or I got these great resources from this website, it was actually those life experiences often that changed the ways people thought about students and about learning and about themselves. Absolutely. 
I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And some of your your Aboriginal Voices projects really interesting. That talks about those knowledge systems and culture and identity, and also that sort of strengths based approach of of what are the aspirations of our mm. Aboriginal young people and their families. Can you talk a little bit about that project? I can, and just to, just to provide a context to that. Most people might be or would be aware that you know the vast majority that goes in money that resources that goes into uh, the states and territories, you know, is delivered by the Commonwealth under uh, the closing the gap strategy, you know, which is an incredibly complex range of of programs that support um, Indigenous people in this country. And you know, over the last decade, there's been an excess of you know forty five billion dollars spent by state and territory governments on the education of Aboriginal students. And there is less than 300,000 Aboriginal students in schools. So, you know, if they'd just given us the money, every student would be a multimillionaire. Often the, the, the call from school systems is just give us more money and, and we, will, we will do this work. And when it became really clear to me that there's no amount of money that you could put into the system that was going to make a difference until there was something structurally, you know, the system itself structurally changed. The Aboriginal Voices came out of, you know, my thinking about my doctoral work. You know, at that stage when I finished my, my doctorate, you know, I was 63 years old. I'd had a long time to think about this and, you know, been at the coalface, you know, in many, many, many schools. Uh, you know, I was one of those sort of people that in the old days when you had, a, you know, an, an old telephone book, you needed several pages for me alone because I just was on the move all the time, moving from place to place and school to school, looking for more experiences and I had lots of opportunities to sort of look and, and be, you know, in inner city schools, suburban schools, out of suburban schools, regional high schools, in remote towns, in very, very remote communities. I was sort of, I was one of that sort of people that was constantly on the move and dragging my, my family with me. And I was always looking for and always on, on, the, on the lookout for, you know, one of the things I was interested in, you know, was where was success? What does success look like for Aboriginal education? Where, who's doing it? Where, where can I identify these programs? And my, my postdoctoral work was very quickly, I, I realised within a few months of starting at Macquarie University, I, I thank them for, for taking me on and giving me that opportunity to have time to think about what I really thought needed to happen was that I realised with even though I'd finished this, you know, I thought I'd done this magic piece of work and, you know, I now had a hat and I could wander around and say I was a doctor. Um, <laughs> I love the I hat, although I'd basic... quite like the stuff that you get in Finland. <laughs> but I, I realised that I didn't know very much at all. There was very little that – and one of the things that had really concerned me and I'd seen a lot because I was basically in, you know, the upper middle management of, of an education bureaucracy and held a position, you know, has some status. So I, I had the opportunity to, to you know, get around and, and see how the systems worked. And for my sins, I was um, – one of the, one of the tasks I had as an inspector of Aboriginal education is I actually was part of the accreditation process for non-government schools. So it was – meant that I went into a lot of schools and looked at a lot of school programs and a lot of school work and I was able to ask teachers the sort of questions that very few people get to ask and require the teacher to, to respond and in a sense, but in a, in a professional sort of conversation way, but I could sort of see what was happening across hundreds of schools and I was concerned that I just could not find that school 
that program that seemed to have this this amazing impact that was going to shift the outcomes for Aboriginal kids. And you understand, of course, that the outcomes for Aboriginal kids is absolutely diabolical even now, even after now we've had you know more than a decade, probably 15 years of the Closing the Gap strategy since Kevin Rudd announced it in 2007. And before that, there was you know other arrangements between between the Labor government. So there's been this long history of, of pouring in bucket loads of money buckets and buckets of money and the employment of staff and all sorts of stuff like that. You know, I was thinking that I was going to develop this, you know, new way of thinking about schooling and realised that I was going to do no more than what had already been done, which was to have some guru come along and supposedly make up some some stuff, do the best that they could, put out a program and then spend the rest of their life trying to prove that it was going to work. And, and at the end, seeing that it didn't work. And I thought, well, maybe I just need to stop for a second and draw breath and see where success, what does success look like? Where is success to be seen? And is it, when I find it, is it something that can be replicated? Pretty simple set of questions, I would have thought, you know, show me success. What does it look like? Mm-hmm. You know, and school systems have been doing this for, for eons, you know, showing and demonstrating, highlighting success in maths teaching and English teaching and so on and so forth. And there are people who, who swan around and are great exponents of all that, that, that sort of, you know, educational achievement. And yet I was concerned that I hadn't seen any of it. And I thought, well, have I just been looking in the wrong places? I, I, I was working in schools with high numbers of Aboriginal kids, but I couldn't find success. All I could see was incredible levels of resistance and conflict and kids leaving school at the age of 13 and less, you know, and, you know, systemic sort of disinterest in Aboriginal success. So I stopped and the Aboriginal Voices Project was I found... 14 amazing academics, who, to whom many of them I didn't know, in front of them and asked them, would they be interested in working with me to do some research to try to find what success looked like? And initially, I was just going to look at the things that school systems were re- obliged to report on, which was literacy, numeracy and attendance. You know, mm. And I was, of course, that those things, while they are a thing, the outcome of other more important things, you know, in terms of good practices and good curriculum and, and so on. So I moved from just doing literacy and numeracy and attendance to actually breaking down, thinking about myself as a teacher, as a young teacher, when I closed that door and there were, you know, 30 or 35 students in that classroom when I first started teaching, what was it that I needed to have and know about to be an effective teacher? So what would a 21-year-old ask about that and and try to survive? So we decided to then look at 10 areas of education and really try to dig deep in all those areas of education and to look at all of the Australian research. I wasn't interested in looking. I knew the external research. I mean, I had had a sense of what was happening outside Australia. For too long, that has been attractive because, you know, there has been, you know, evidence of success in other jurisdictions. But too often, people have thought that we can just grab that program and drop it in Australia and hunky-dory where we go. The Aboriginal Voices Project was, in a sense, to to look at all of the research. Of all of the research was done by our by our, the colleagues, the people I was working with over the last you know, fifteen years, and say, so surely amongst all that research across the whole of Australia, somebody has found success. Somebody has found success in all the areas that I was interested in, and so that journey took us on a, a two-year project of really intense research and labour to, one, identify all this research, then to read this research and to find whether or not it met our criteria, and then to analyse the research to find, at the end, 
that at the end of all of that, looking through 13,500 studies, that we couldn't find one example of a sustainable program that demonstrated educational success for Aboriginal kids. Not one. Which is not to say that there wasn't success somewhere in the system, but nobody had done the research to show what it looked like, to, who, who had described it, who could you know, demonstrate that their approach had been successful, had met the criteria that we were, we were using very conservative metrics to look at that, that criteria. We wanted to make sure that we didn't get swept up in the sort of the, you know, the people's claims about success, but we were actually looking for what would be seen as being evidence of success. And that was incredibly distressing. So a large team of researchers, two years, 13,500 studies, and your findings were no one's found it yet. Nobody has found it, not even come close to it. But what we did find, I mean, they, so that was disturbing. That was a really disturbing primary outcome. But the notion of sustained success, you know, where you can actually build something, develop something, train people up, and then get success that lasted more than 12 months or two years or whatever, that was often then dependent on just one person. When the one person leaves, the program was virtually falling down behind them. And so we were looking at how a system can, you know, generate that success that isn't dependent on just this one person. While we did find that there were no examples of programs, what we found was evidence of when there were moments of success, we looked through that success to try to find what were the things that sustained it or built it or were necessary for success to occur. And that was the most interesting thing because we did find that there was a range of things that were absolutely critical that needed to be understood, managed and actually addressed for any program to have any element of success. And those elements became the basis of what we're now calling the Culturally Nourishing Schooling Project, which is, in a sense, the dynamics of schooling. So we've moved from the program to really then thinking about schooling as a practice mm. and looking at all the things that need to be conjointly managed and understood and worked with simultaneously, not separately, not concurrently in the sense of doing one and moving on to something else, but these things need to work simultaneously to actually build a different type of education system that does actually account for you know, the unique histories and identities and aspirations of Indigenous students. Aboriginal kids want to be able to read and write. They want to have success. They want to be able to work, find a job, buy a car and do the things that everybody else wants to do. But... Once a student, if you have an Aboriginal student in class and you ask them about themselves and they identify as an Aboriginal student, one, if they identify themselves as a particular sort of Aboriginal student, I'm a gubby gubby, my family belongs to here, this is my connections, this is my family, this is my community, that's more than just telling you where they live, where they've come from. This is telling you a whole history of what their aspirations are. And teachers for too long have never understood the importance of identity in terms of what an Aboriginal kid is saying to them. Mm. Identity is critical. Without identity, Aboriginal kids are not Aboriginal kids. They know that. They know that they don't have a place if they can't identify and identity means something to them. So out of all of that, you know, we understood that these critical elements, the critical importance of leadership, not just in leadership of moving money around, of employing people and buying a set of textbooks. Anybody can do that. You can get you can get a you know an admin officer to do that for you. Leadership, which is about this notion, this Freirean notion of being consciousized of having a, a deep understanding of 
what it means to be a principal and a leader in a school where you have these kids in the school. It is different. I'm not saying that other kids aren't different as well, but when it comes to Aboriginal kids in schools, you need to understand that it is critically different and a different way of operating and understanding and engaging. The importance of relationships with communities is absolutely critical. Without that, there is no success at school. So schools need to actually really develop an understanding. And this is a, you know, school community engagement, you know, is the, the, the bugbear of every school system. It's actually understanding the identity of students is, is critical and, and addressing that in a way that actually means something to Aboriginal kids. So schools that actually are often quite ephemerally had dance programs, art programs, language programs, sometimes a sport program that actually gave an outlet for Aboriginal kids where their identity could shine and it meant something is a critical element. And and when those things happen, they move from being happenstance to something that actually is managed and understood and developed and, and given sort of some long-term engagement uh, in the school that kids actually stay at school. There's a clear correlation. They're, finally, mm. we've, we've done that systematic review and looked at that evidence, as scant as it is, but when kids have access to those sorts of programs, they come to school. Well, we, how about that? You know, <laughs> it shouldn't surprise us. Coming to teachers, we need to think about what teaching and teaching practice looks like and what's different. So we've developed our own set of pedagogical standards that actually sits beside anyone who knows about teaching and learning as, as yourself, Deb, you know, and really is versed in the, in the literature on, on effective practice we see effective practice all over our work, but we've orientated our pedagogical framework to the task of teaching Aboriginal kids in schools. And we've really been upfront about that and started to identify that and identify and be able to show what that looks like in a classroom. So these things need to work concurrently. The leadership, the engagement, good practice, working in that cultural domain and really are doing it in a really purposeful, long-term, way, systematic way that builds on and, and value adds to, to that process. It builds and strengthens the relationship between schools and communities. It brings community people into the school to do that teaching learning work with the school. The school then has to then develop programs, not just the ephemeral stuff on Wednesday afternoons when all the other kids have gone home, but the classroom stuff. What happens when you know the local Noongar language program where you are is taught in schools and kids get be able to actually do a certificate in or get qualifications in in language. That sort of engagement, you know, actually makes a difference. So what we've built then is a sort of like new process of understanding schooling and realise that you need to do it in a systematic way that actually brings these elements to the fore all at the same time. So that really exciting, culturally nourishing schooling project sounds like it's you really positively filling the gap that you found with the Aboriginal Voices Project. Yeah. I read the paper that you wrote with Nikki Moody and Greg Vass on the Aboriginal Voices Project and its findings. And one thing that struck me was actually at the end of the paper, between the paper and the references, this paragraph of the acknowledgements. And I think you've answered the question that I had about that because I'll just read it because it struck me as this kind of call to positive action rather than you said there's been lots of investment, there's been lots of research and everyone's just been spinning the same wheels over and over. But you you write there, we believe it's our collective responsibility to play whatever role we can to heal the damage of extra activist research, to amplify the aspirations of Indigenous young people and their communities and to recommit ourselves to the project of Indigenous self-determination. 
We offer this work in the hope that the stories of the past are heard and we and this is the bit that I think struck me the most and we can move beyond questions that have already been answered by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people many times over. So that idea that this work that you're doing now with culturally nourishing schooling and pedagogies and community engagement is, hey, here's something that will move us beyond the constant looking back, asking of questions, answering the same questions over and over again. Yeah. Is that part of what, what's driven it, do you think? Absolutely. The, the fact that we call the program Aboriginal Voices wasn't just a cute play of words. The answers were staring us in the face. We were just pulling out the evidence that was clear. We didn't go back and redo any of that, that research. We didn't need to. The actual voices were there and telling us over and over again, this is what we see as the things that impact on our lives and our kids' lives day by day. This is what we're hoping for. We come back over and over and over again and tell you. You ask us, we come along, we give you advice, we talk to you, and you don't seem to hear us. And so the Aboriginal Voices was, in a sense, about sort of bringing those voices back onto the table and saying, you know what, they've always been here. They've been telling you over and again what needs to happen. Mm. You've just chosen not to understand it. It was only when you could see all of this research and you could just see these bits and pieces of stuff and put them together. When we did all that work, you know, we we chose, you know, those papers that, that really met all those criteria and the evidence was just sitting there in spades, in spades. And, and the other thing that really has really, I guess, really drove me too, there was that, you must have heard this, you know, that governments will say over and over again, you know, uh, that we're going to develop this new policy and uh, a new strategy and we're going to invest all this money to it and we're going to move all this staff around, do all these things, and it's all research-based. You know, it's we, we're interpreting the research and the research tells us this. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to be able to sort of look at the research that I thought they would have been looking at and say, where's, so where's this, where's this research? Where's this research that says that this new literacy program, you've thrown out the old literacy program and put this in, and you said it's research-based, where's the research on that? And you know what? That was the most disturbing thing is that they couldn't they couldn't point to that research. They couldn't mm. point to it and we couldn't find it. So I, I don't know what, what research they're looking at, but certainly wasn't in any of the journals that we looked at. So that was really disturbing. Well, one of the other things that really came out, which is a sort of an aside to the practice-based work we're doing now, is to, to go back and really understand the influence of curriculum. Curriculum is the most extraordinarily powerful document. I came across a paper once, which was, you know, had been written for the New South Wales Department of Education, and somebody had come back from a conference and put a copy in the file, and it sat there for ten years. And I pulled it out and read it. So it was, you know, it was going right back to the nineteen eighties. And one of the comments that they made about curriculum, he said, "I'm amazed at how much power is given to so few to determine what every child in this country has to learn, not just for a day or a week or a month, but for ten years at least." These documents have a life that go on for interminable amounts of time. One of the other projects that I might not have time to talk about now, but is to really investigate the impact of curriculum on the making of teachers. Not just a sort of sense, in a sense of how you teach it, but deeply how teachers come to the task, how they epistemically and ontologically position themselves as a teacher and how they understand knowledge within the domain for which they feel they have expertise in, especially in a secondary environment where, you know, you're either an English teacher, a maths teacher, a science teacher, whatever. Once you utter that sense that I'm a this sort of teacher, I'm not a generalist primary school teacher, but I'm a specialist maths teacher, whatever, then teachers make a really strong claim about how they position themselves in relation to knowledge. And why I'm interested in that is because we believe in the structures of curriculum that we have these days is that we can just drop in a piece of Indigenous content somewhere into a, the curriculum document 
and believe that Deb, the English teacher, or Kevin, the science teacher, or Joe Bloggs, the sort of you know the, the you know the language teacher, will implicitly understand what that bit of knowledge is, how to, how it actually then links or doesn't link to what they're teaching, and then be able to teach it in an effective way that students would be able to learn something about Indigenous people. Do you know what? You might have heard this yourself many, many times. I've heard so many teachers say, I don't, I don't feel I have the skills or the knowledge to teach this Indigenous content. I don't have a connection to it. I don't feel it's my, my job to teach this content. It should be taught by people who know this stuff. Um, you know, over and over again, that gets spun around in, in, in various forms. But what we do know is that teachers often or not teach in a very perfunctory way Indigenous content because they just don't know how to engage with it. And so the flip side of this work that we're doing in schools is try to understand also the policy domains that actually impact. And so how curriculum as policy impacts on the teaching standards, which then come out of and also impact on teaching professional standards in terms of the profession itself. And that the, so that the making of Kevin, the science teacher, isn't just what happens to Kevin at university. It's something that happens from day one at the age of five and goes across 13 years of schooling, then it then gets amplified at school, at university, and then comes out as Kevin as a, as a fully formed science teacher, understanding implicitly what science teachers need to do and what science teaching is and what science is, and, but having no skills to be able to engage in how to teach Indigenous knowledges sitting in the science curriculum. So you've got those layers of policy, curriculum, practice, but then you've got leadership, but then you've also got the beliefs and the identities and the assumptions and the histories, personal and family histories of everyone that's in a school environment and in a school community all layering on top of one another. It's big work, Kevin. Yeah, I know. I, I, wish, I, was, I wish I was like 30 or 40 and I, I had time to really <laughs> do more work in this space, but maybe you need to stay in the system long enough to really understand how it works and to be able to see it not just as a, a book exercise, but to actually see how it plays out day on day, year on year, see what happens to kids and see how teachers teachers are crushed by their own inability to do the work that I think that they want to do. Yeah, mm. I'm running as fast as I can. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you are in all directions. And we're coming to the end of our time together, so I'm going to move us to our final five quickfire yeah, questions, sure. the first of which is what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? They all know that I, I have five kids, and I, and you know, so I'm, I'm an absolute gooey dad. But one of the things that I do often throughout the year on weekends is I make jam. I love making jam. My grandmother's a great cook, and I just picked up all of her traits. I have her tools and her spatulas, and I cook away on weekends. Fantastic. What is something that is currently on your desk? A thesis to mark, three papers to review, and and a dead cup of tea. desk is as busy as the rest of the files by the sound of things who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do i've come across some amazing people the one person i've i've really got a lot of time for is a fellow called uh, john gunter who's a non-original academic who works out of darwin and does all of his research in central australia i have a lot of time for john he's a a person who um you know, has developed a really acute level of engagement with Aboriginal families and communities and is a, is a great advocate for Indigenous education in remote Australia. Fantastic. And it sounds like you have a lot of things 
that you're in the midst of and that are coming up. But what is one thing that you've got coming up that you're excited about? I'm excited about all the things I do because I wouldn't do them otherwise. But one of the, it's a little project which I, I'm working with this amazing academic, um, this amazing woman from UNSW, Rose Amazan, who is, um, came to Australia. And she's a, you know, from the Caribbean, grew up and, and went to school in New York, became a, uh, a deputy principal of a school of last resort in Harlem. I reckon that would be about hard as you can get. Came to Australia and did a PhD, did a lot of work, amazing work in Aboriginal community literacy programs, teaching adults literacy who are people who are functionally illiterate and numerate. But we're doing a little project with primary schools about helping primary teachers reconceptualise curriculum in a way that, so that they, can, they can actually articulate curriculum narrative. What's, what does it mean to actually have a curriculum narrative where teachers can see the totality of Indigenous content and actually tell a story from beginning to end? To be able to sort of take kids on a learning journey from the ages of, you know, if these kids these are in primary school, from kids from the age of five and kindy right through to the end of year six. So when that year six kid turns around and looks back at the school they can actually say something back to their teachers uh, and their people who work with them, something really meaningful about their deep understanding of Indigenous people. We can do that work. But mm. I tell you what, it takes a lot to undo the history of the making of teachers such that teachers can then actually can see this work. But my God, these teachers we're working with, they are just thirsty for knowledges. Thank you. And my final question is if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what's one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? I'd probably come back to the point that we almost started on, which is that relationships, deep understanding about purpose and function and your responsibilities to yourself and to these students who are in your care as teachers, that it absolutely rises or falls on the quality of the relationship that you have with them. Mm. So back to that initial thought of teachers that are grounded in social justice and seeking to understand, to know and to care for the students in their care, especially those on the margins or from Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community. Absolutely. Teachers need to like kids. They need to like them and they need to engage with them and understand them and understand what's going on in their heads, which doesn't mean that they, they just have to roll over and do what kids want. They need to lead kids and help kids to be the sorts of adults that I'm sure they want to become in the future. Having that relationship is is critical. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you so much for having me, Dev. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.